Episode 174, everybody, with Kimberly pittman Shoals, the author of Grieving Us, A Field Guide for Living with Loss Without Losing Yourself. A grief counselor, she came on and talked about her experiences dealing with a wide range of people and helping them overcome grief after suffering an insurmountable loss. Uh, tremendously valuable and, and insightful and really appreciate this uh, topic, a sensitive topic, but something that's so critical, so important. All of us suffer loss at some point in life and um, or we know somebody that has and it's just it's one of those things that's inevitable and important to handle grief in the best way possible so that you can overcome those devastating feelings and while you may never truly be the same again after losing a loved one um, you can shift and pivot and find your way back to some normalcy and and different things, different aspects of life that maybe you, you had never considered before. So check her out. Kimberly at PoetOwl.com is her email. We linked her up in the show notes. And uh, with that said, everybody, please welcome the one and only Kimberly Pittman Shoals. The Optimal Life. talk a little bit you help people overcome grief give us right off the bat give us like a, a completely gut-wrenching example where somebody has I assume like you've dealt with people that have lost children oh my gosh I've dealt with people Nate from all walks of life um, and while there's sort of no loss that's worse than any other loss there is a little bit in the grief world a tendency to think that some losses are made way worse or more grief worthy than others and I will just say right off the bat I've had people grieve their animal companions sometimes more deeply than a spouse um, so the depth of the grief really depends on the relationship and what I call the dailiness of the relationship and therefore the dailiness of the loss but yes I've uh, particularly in my work with philanthropy over a lot of years people don't think about the fact that a lot of philanthropy um, is precipitated or inspired by loss and trying to make some sense or meaning out of a loss. So yes, I, um, I, I probably the most, one of the most heart-wrenching for me uh, was earlier in my career, I was the uh, chief executive officer of a community foundation in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which is the birthplace of Little League for any Little Leaguers out there. <laughs> and at the time I was being hired, it was right after Flight 800 crashed into the ocean and a community that the, that the foundation would be serving actually lost um, you know, 16 teenagers and five adults who were chaperones. They were a French club going on a life journey to France to practice their French and so as I was going through the interviews for that position and then eventually I did become the CEO of that community foundation um, one of the most meaningful experiences in my life Nate was working with most of those families who had lost people on that flight to help them craft something meaningful philanthropically that would honor and cherish and create a legacy for those individuals Wow. So talk a little bit about that. When these people come to you and they sit down in front of you, what's the process? Where do you even begin? Well, you know, where I begin is I just want to understand who they are, 
you know, where they are in their loss process, their grief process. Uh, one of the things that's so important for people to understand is that everybody grieves differently. Uh, there are different, there are many different grieving styles. There's generally, to me, to my mind, there's three major grieving styles. In fact, I, I even have a, a quiz that I offer people because people often think they're grieving wrong or they feel like they're not grieving right or there's societal pressures about grieving. But I always like to start with people where they are at. Um, what are they struggling with? And get a sense of, you know, some people show their grief through emotions and will be very expressive and you will see, witness their grief very firsthand. Others um, are more oriented toward thought and action. And so they may seem surprisingly calm and cool, but be carrying an awful lot of grief and depth or even feel, you know, inside them or even feel like they need to be strong for other people. So I always start with where they're at who was the person in their life and the big one for me is encouraging them to tell their lost story to really um, you know go into as much depth as they do or don't want to do um, in telling me their lost story and mm. who was that person in their life how did it affect their life um, what was meaningful to them and the relationship and just trying to understand where the holes are in their days right now and you know how can we begin to take what could be grief holes and lack of momentum because they're grieving and turn those into opportunities to let a little joy back into their life. So I really start with where they're at and their story. Yeah, so you mentioned there's three different types of grieving styles um, that, and you kind of touched on it. It sounds like one is, it's very emotional. There's maybe a couple others. Elaborate on that a little bit if you would. Certainly, and just so you know, Nate, for you and your listeners, I am a very animal-oriented person. I'm a birder. I'm a naturalist as well. So I tend to, um, when I make analogies, I often tend to make analogies in the animal world. So I think of grieving style, the three main grieving styles as you're either a bear, a hummingbird, or a chameleon. And by that I mean if you're a bear, you're what's called in the psychology world uh, an intuitive griever. That means you really do draw from your emotions, your feelings. Um, you tend to be more, oh, tend to be, and again, not everybody fits the same mold. A lot depends on if you're introvert or extrovert too. But in what I call the bear grievers, the intuitive grievers tend to be much more expressive. The hummingbird uh, grievers, as I call them, they are the ones that tend to use thoughts and actions to help them navigate grief. So they're the ones that are going to tend to stay busy they're the ones that are not necessarily going to show their emotions so readily but they may be the ones taking care of the details for the memorial or really working on some of the details like when I work with donors they may be the ones focusing on the gift agreements because they're like it focuses their mind and their actions um, in their grief process and then the chameleons are the ones I call the blended grievers and so they'll use both emotions and feelings and thoughts and actions often adapting to their circumstances so they might express emotions around friends and family and then you know at work be just be so just look like they're doing great doing fine and just get through the day and seem very almost unaffected so they're much more adaptable is there one style that stands out above the others that you look at and say is there one style that that basically hurts somebody more so than another style in terms of their recovery process 
Nate, I absolutely love that question because I do think there's a tendency to think one grieving style is better than another. Um, ironically, I feel like in the developed world here, we have a tendency to expect people to cry and moan and be very visible in their grief for a while. And then there's an expectation that they're going to get over it, move on, and, and tough it up. And that sort of societal expectation does put pressure on people sometimes to to try to alter their own natural griever behavior, if you will. But in my experience, there is no one right way. You know, some people might say, oh, if you're holding that all in and you're not expressing it, that's going to harm you. Well, long term, it could if you're not dealing with it. But if you're dealing with it, let's say you're that hummingbird who's just feels looks like they're pushing the grief away because they're just staying so constantly busy and they're acting and they're thinking about things. There's still a lot going on with those individuals. I think there's assumption that there isn't, but there's still so much that they're trying to think through and sort of solve their grief challenges. Um, you know, the same thing you might think the chameleon. Well, they can blend. They can be emotional here and and and, and kind of hold it in when they need to. Um, each of the the griever behaviors serves people, and if it's it's only about extremes, Nate. Right. Um, if you take any behavior to an extreme, that's when it starts to create problems. So I think that's the thing for me that's a little different than a lot of people talking about grief. Is um, I just witnessed. Uh, I mean, I've just witnessed how people heal and how people don't heal and um, all of the styles work so for someone that's listening that's lost somebody dearly close to them and they're struggling and to me the, the most horrific thing is a parent losing a child that's why I started with that example so Absolutely. what are the things that you would what are some some tips and techniques that you would offer these people right off the bat what can they do well I think for me, I have a process I call Tiny Come Back to Your Senses Rituals, and it kind of ties into my own experience overcoming um, a series of losses. You know, I was a very young child, but I went through a period as an adult where I lost my mother, and two weeks before I lost my mother, my friend and neighbor committed suicide, actually right under the tree outside my kitchen window, and then two weeks later, my mother is dying. So they kind of get tied up together, and I went through about a two-year period where I really struggled and really felt lost and my life stopped in many ways um, and I sort of stumbled accidentally into what I call you know tiny come back to your senses rituals they're creating these spaces in your day where you can take a break from grief um, in this field you know everybody has different philosophies and what works for one person may or may not work for another but I will say, I often hear people say grief is forever, and I, I tend to define things a little differently in my book, Grieving Us, um, a field guide for living with loss without losing yourself. Um, one of the things I point out is loss and grief are related, but they're different. And loss tends to react more to or respond more to the fact somebody in your world has died or you've lost in another way. I mean, divorce can feel like death to many people. Uh, whereas grief is that internal reaction, and it can it doesn't have to be forever. It may come and go over a lifetime. We'll re, sort of re-experiencing a loss throughout our life, but it doesn't have to be there all the time, every day. And so the first thing I do in working with people, if, and again, first asking if they want advice. So often we want to jump in and give people advice, and I think it's so important to say, 
can I offer some ideas? Because maybe they don't want those ideas. But if they do, I will usually describe my tiny come back to your senses rituals to create a break in your day so that A, you get a break, and B, in that break, you can begin to introduce or re-invite joy back into your days. It sounds Pollyanna. All I can say is it really works. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the things, what are some of those tiny come back to your senses rituals what are some examples yes um and for everybody it's different what works for me um might be very different than what work for somebody else the way i started nate was when i was in this two-year period of in lost limbo as i called it um i used to have, we all have habits and rituals you know we don't think about our relationships with people this way but Love is really a habit, and how we love people takes shape in rituals, habits, and routines, just like the rest of our life, right? So I used to have a ritual every night, locking all the doors to the house. At that point, I was living in southwest Washington along the Lewis River, and one night, uh, as I was about to lock the doors, it was kind of a nice night, and I decided to walk out to the river, and I walked out to the river, and I just stood there, and I listened to the water, Sometimes when you listen to the water, you'll hear voices. There really weren't any voices. It's the water itself and the sound going over the rocks. Um, You know, I could hear birds shifting in the trees above. They weren't flying, but they were just sort of shifting up there, you know, I guess for their nighttime refuge. Um, I was feeling the, you know, just the air, the dampness in the air. And I just stood there for a few minutes. And as I walked back toward the house, I realized, oh, my gosh, I felt so good in that little space of a few moments um i had taken a break from grief and uh, long story short what a tiny come back to your senses rituals is is it's really pausing in places in your day um and it may just be for three minutes i encourage people just to shoot for three minutes and you just pay attention you just use all of your senses to pay attention and just be in the world. It sounds, again, a little touchy-feely until you do it and realize it does create a break and it helps make your body, your mind, your spirit, um, all of you more connected in the moment and it creates that break and afterwards you can feel better, not only for that three minutes, but for a lot longer. So I often encourage people to start with a sense that they don't use very often. So we're mostly visual people Go out and listen to the world for a minute. Um, go smell the world. Now, scent can be very triggering at times, but if you know, I like if someone you you loved and lost, you know, was really into perfume or you know herbal scents or something, that might not be the sense you start with. But but taking a sense often that you don't use intentionally and just paying attention to what comes in through that sense for just a couple of moments a day can start to create a break and it's it's really simple but I've worked with so many people and shared it and they're so surprised when they come back and they'll tell me oh my gosh I thought this was crazy but it worked yeah that's and, and you and you suggest it's got to become a habit and routine and a ritual do you you would you keep going back to that body of water constantly it doesn't have to be that body of water. Um, I think it's more about where you fit in with the routine and what's meaningful to you. So I've had, uh, for instance, I remember working with a woman who was trying it, and she says, oh, Kimberly, I don't even have three minutes. My, She was definitely a hummingbird griever. She was one of those that just kept really busy. She'd lost her brother. Uh, I think it was her brother, yeah, and she just stayed really, really busy and didn't think she had even a few moments. And I said, well, you know, just start with three minutes, but find a routine. And a lot of times when we're grieving people, our routines are broken because we're missing our people, right? If we're 
in my book, I, I share a story about a woman who wrote love notes to her husband who had been ill for, for several years before he died. And then with his passing, all of a sudden there was that time every morning that she would write a love note and now she had no one to write a love note to. And those became giant grief holes for her because they were part of her daily routine, what she did every morning. So in that space where she used to write a love note, I suggested to her, you know, that's the place to you know, before you jump in the car with your coffee, just stand beside your car and what's happening in the moment, what's happening in that day. Or, you know, how do you feel? The other thing is how your body physically feels because you can do this anywhere. You can do it in an airport. You can do it as you're getting into bed. You can do it in a meeting. If you're suddenly feeling a wave of grief is to just, you know, think about how are, how are my feet feeling right now? What's going on with my knees? And just focus on something sensory and that surprisingly can help bring you back to a more calm place so right. it just depends on the person but the most important thing when people are having a hard time doing this is to build it into a routine that's already still working even in the midst of grief for me it was locking those doors every night I then developed a morning ritual around making a cup of tea because I always no matter what make a cup of tea in the morning so to make a cup of tea and for me, even to this day, I then go out on the deck and I have those moments where I'm just taking in that morning and paying attention to what I'm feeling and seeing and sensing and smelling. And that's what you talk about. You talk about the grieving mindfully. So you're not only doing the habit routine, you're doing the re repetition. You're also being extremely aware of the way you're feeling, correct? Yes, it, it is. It's very much a mindfulness. And I didn't think about it that way until, again, after the fact, because, Nate, I, I essentially stumbled into this early on. And then from there, as I began to share it, and that's when I began to take on the name that I gave it, Tiny Come Back to Your Senses Rituals, because they are tiny initial, initially, and it is about coming back to your senses. And that, and it is a very mindful practice, but it can be start with just the really, literally, the tiny few moments. And so, what what are these? When you talk about, you come back to your senses, and this could lead to potentially the the new life that you so desire after suffering such a devastating loss. Um, so, how do you? What what are they, what are these people? What are your clients doing to create these new lives? It just, um, again, it's so individual. It really depends on the person, their grieving style, what's happening in their life, and the nature of the loss. I mean, some losses are so much deeper, as you said. Often the loss of a child is the hardest because we feel it defies the law of nature. We're supposed to outlive our children, yeah, um, and yeah. especially if children have died horrifically. Um, I've worked with a few people whose children were murdered, and that's um, a very, very mm. hard loss, and I've seen them grieve in very, very, very different ways and learn from them. You know, I had two people I was working with within a few months of each other um, where one couple ended up, you know, it turned out they basically sold everything, got in a mobile home and started traveling the country to help other parents who have lost murdered children. And another woman I worked with had sort of consciously made the decision that she just was not going to be happy without her son, that he just, you know, she was gone from the world and, and that she was sort of making a choice in learning to live without him, but also learning to live with some other pieces of her life. And that was her choice. So the way it would work for some, and I'm trying to think of a few people I've worked with recently, um, you know, it starts out with a very, um, in one case, I think of a woman where for her, um, she had pretty much stopped. What happens with grief is you have, you know, maybe you've experienced yourself um, in your own losses. 
you stop doing a lot of things you used to enjoy doing, at least for a while. So for her, um, it was about getting back into doing some arts and some crafts. She had been a knitter. It was tied to her mother, and she'd lost her mother. And so for her, it started by first building in a break, and for her, it was just breathing. We talked about taking a moment in her day between meetings when she would feel stressful and a certain time of the day in the early evening as she would shift from her day job into evening, which for many people is the hardest time is when you're home and, you know, whether you're with people or not, you can feel that loss a little bit more in the evening time and as the day gets later. So she had a period when she was making her shift in the car from coming home to from going from work to coming home that she would just literally practice breathing in the car and trying to calm her mind and just focus on one thing at a, at a time mainly driving which she had been doing very unconsciously she would get home and not know how she got home so just literally paying attention to how the steering wheel felt in her hand um what the person looked like crossing the crosswalk in front of her, just that mindfulness, really being mindful during that drive. And then when she got home, she started taking up knitting again and mm-hmm. starting with something small. First, she didn't even know what she was going to knit. She just started knitting, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then decided later on what it would be. And in time, it developed into a whole new joy habit where, you know, she got into knitting machines and, and actually selling some of what she was making. Right. Um, I've also worked with men where it may be, you know, it may be running. It may be running is a popular one that often happens where people just start running or running more or running in a way they didn't used to run. Yeah. And just bringing that back, working out can be really helpful for people. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You mentioned the family who lost their child, I think you said to a murder, who ended up getting on the road and just going and helping other people that have experienced the same thing. And that reminds me of. Um, that reminds me of like the AA program, like the 12-step program where you've got your 11 steps, but you can't finish and really complete the circle to your 12th step, which I believe is is helping another alcoholic. And it's like you, you can't truly start healing yourself until you're helping somebody else. That reminded me of that. So talk a little bit about about how to overcome grief by, by helping others who have suffered similar losses. Oh, I love this question, Nate, because, again, it's one of these things I kind of discovered after I had been experiencing it personally and working with other people to do it and hadn't really thought about it this way, but giving to others, whether that's philanthropically, I've worked with, you know, philanthropies, it could be literally giving resources to create a scholarship or something, but it can also be random acts of kindness, it can be volunteering your time, it can be you know, just listening to people that are struggling with something that you feel like you may still be struggling with, but you might just be one or two steps ahead of them. And by sharing what you've experienced or simply being a witness, I can't tell you how often, simply being someone who listens and witnesses what is going on in a person's life, their lost story, what they're experiencing and feeling, can, without even trying to fix or help or even necessarily support, just being there can be so therapeutic. So for me, I discovered this through my career, a very long career in philanthropy, that um, when we give to others, and again, it doesn't have to be the money piece, it can be other ways that we give of ourselves, our talents, as well as our treasures, our time, Um, it really helps us be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves and it I think what it also does I call it being an avatar for our loved ones Um, for me and I know many others 
part of that giving is living for the other person. So when I think of those families who lost kids in Flight 800 or spouses in Flight 800 um, back in the mid-90s, you can't bring them back. But the idea that some other person's young child is going to get a chance to go to college and pursue a college dream that your child didn't get to do is surprisingly healing. It doesn't fix anything really, Nate, but it helps you feel like some little part of that person you love and you is doing is trying to make some little tiny piece of good out of something that's pretty awful. Wow, yeah, that's really powerful. So talk to us about... Uh, I, I can go so many different directions. I, I really want to know this first. When somebody isn't sitting in front of you again, and, and they're just they're just broken. It's the beginning, and this devastating event just took place, and they don't even. I mean, they probably feel like they're hyperventilating in front of you. I take it. I mean, they, some people probably can't even feel like they can breathe. Um, what is the what is the advice that when you're they're sitting there in that moment of panic, and this is a very early stage after the grief after the loss occurs. What are some of the things that you yourself are saying to them to give them little glimmers of hope in this really dark time? Well, you know, Nate, that early period, I, t- I tend to think of it or call it raw grief for any other reason. I mean, there's definitely a period immediately after a loss, and that can be literally minutes, hours, days, weeks, months. For some people, it can extend for a couple of years. You know, what I hope to do when I through my book and through, you know, the workshops I provide is to help people navigate their grief but not get stuck there, um, you know, longer than they really need to be to heal. So when I am provided with somebody, whether and lately it's been, frankly, Zoom, you know, because so much of it's virtual, sure. and that could be even trickier because you don't have that physical presence, although I will say you can still read a lot about body language even virtually, but when I have someone sitting in front of me and they are in that raw grief stage... I actually encourage them not to try to make a bunch of decisions or make too many, don't try to overthink too much, you know, what next or, you know, what are they going to do or any of that kind of um, decision-making process because they really need to deal with what just happened. So when someone's there, I, again, my first inclination is to say, do you want to tell me about it? Do you want to tell me your lost story? Do you want to help me understand who this person was? A lot of times when we're working with grieving people, there's this assumption you don't want to say the dead person's name or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. And unfortunately, there's no one right thing. I mean, I, I can't tell you how often I'll listen to a podcast or read a book or see an article and someone's saying, never do this, and the next one says, oh, I wish somebody would have done that. Right. Everybody's so individual, but the hardest part is if people are so afraid they're going to do something wrong that they kind of ignore the person or don't create a space for the person to share. More often than not, but not always, people do want to talk about it. So I often think that the best thing we can do as individuals, and I also talk with attorneys and estate planners and others whose lives are often impacted as well by working with grieving people, our tendency is to change the subject, right? The better thing to do is to meet people where they're at and just be, again, that witness and listener. I encourage people not to make a lot of decisions. I ask them if they want to tell their story. I ask them 
you know, what do they feel like they need? And they usually don't know. They usually have no idea because they can't even think about themselves at that point. And so sometimes as I listen to their story or what they're struggling with, I'll be trying to think, how can I help this person just as another human being? Um, You know, I can't necessarily, you know, if they're in another community, make them soup and take it to them. But um, maybe there is some resource I can bring to them to support them. But honestly, the best thing we can do is to give them the chance to talk to the extent they do or if they want to not talk. Sometimes I've had meetings where we sit there in absolute silence for 15 or 20 minutes until the person feels composed enough to be able to take that next step in the dialogue. That takes I'll just say that takes practice to be able to sit in that space because as human beings... We tend to want to fill in any gaps, especially with people we don't know well. We want to talk into those gaps. And sometimes those gaps are really important for people to just be with whatever's going on, whether or not they want to tell you or not. Sure. To so be present and, and feel what whatever they have to feel. And, and I'm sure from your perspective it is. It's got to be uncomfortable, but you obviously know that something's working in that moment of silence. Um, but I, I'm also just wondering, do you come at it yourself, Kimberly, from like even a spiritual perspective of any sort where you kind of are like, hey, I've met with somebody very similar to you. And let me tell you some of the while this is a terrible situation, let me give you some of the other sides of maybe there's you, you can make it a little bit hopeful for these people in some manner. Do you take that route? Well, I certainly just as a as an individual, as a human being, I am spiritual in nature, I'm not traditionally religious, although I draw from all the major religions in my own belief system. Um, and I do believe, you know, regardless of whatever happens in, you know, afterlife, you know, all we know right now is this exact moment. That's all we have, you know, is this moment. And we want to make the most of that because how you spend your time is how you spend your life. So, Again, I always like to ask people first before offering suggestions, ideas, or even telling stories of others. Uh, I do find storytelling is incredibly powerful and supportive in the right context. So when someone is, especially in that raw grief stage, honestly, Nate, most of the time they don't want to hear a story about somebody else who's been in a similar experience and how great they're doing because they did X. They're not ready for it usually then. Hmm. I will ask, you know, can is there any way, can I, can I offer you some things that have worked for me, you know, and give them the space to say yes or no. Um, if they say yes, you know, what has worked for you? Or, Kimberly, I know you work with a lot of other people that have been through similar things. What has worked? If that space is open, then it will come in But if that space isn't there, I mean, there is a certain amount of permission that I think is important with grieving people because, again, everyone is so different in what they want and what they don't want to be supported. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What does somebody that's gone through this, maybe it's been five years, maybe it's even been longer, but a client that you've had that starts completely devastated and broken, what what does somebody that's been able to create a new life and uh, you know deal with loss without losing themselves what does that person look like today versus what they might have looked like five years ago well you know again it's so individual but I'm thinking as I was listening to your question Nate and trying to see where you're going with the question I envisioned a woman and I I changed names in a few circumstances because I want to honor their privacy um, and the privacy of their loss but there's a woman that I write about 
in my book who lost a child, a toddler. And, uh, and it was one of these really random things, Nate, where the child just fell, did, fell wrong, and like one moment she was there, and the next moment she was gone, and it was a devastating loss, and shortly thereafter, she also had a miscarriage, and um, at the time I met her, many years had passed, I mean, it had been many years past since that loss. Um, and what she looked like, um, she was somebody I had worked. I was working with an international humanitarian organization at that point. And one of the things you were talking about giving to others and finding a way to give back, what she was doing at that point was sponsoring children and had been doing it for for decade for, for a couple decades. She was a grandmother at that point. She had uh, been sponsoring children in developing countries, and I was you know sharing some proposals for what she might be able to do for a girl she sponsored in India. And there's all these cultural differences, so we were working through what's appropriate culturally to to support this girl um but here's the thing she went on to have she she eventually she told me the story of washing baby clothes and i go into detail it in the book it's one of the most um meaningful stories in the book i discovered over time other women have had have done very similar things but she was washing these baby clothes from her toddler after the miscarriage had followed thinking she'd never have children again and uh, it was a, a heart-wrenching experience but also a healing experience for her and allowed her to to carry her daughter with her into her life in a new way and so by the time i met her she was a mother of two other daughters a grandmother um, she had had a successful career enough that she was able to be, you know, do some things philanthropically. She was actually very happy, very upbeat. We were sitting out on her beautiful, you know, back deck. Um, but she also told me, you know, I asked her the question. I said, so when you wash your grandchildren's clothing, and it was a risky thing to ask this question, Nate. I'm pretty careful about these things, so I don't want to trigger anybody. Right. But I was so curious, and she was so open. And she said, you know, and I can't really, I paraphrase it better in the book, but basically what she said is, you know, when she's folding, you know, because she had this pile of clothes after she washed these baby clothes years ago, and she got sat in the middle of the pile of baby clothes, folding them to put in a box to, to give to a women's shelter for somebody else's child, and she just cried and cried and cried. She said, you know, when I'm folding my grandkids' clothes now, because they stay with me a lot and I do their laundry, she says... The thing of it is, I have somebody helping me fold. And what she meant by that, and she she said it much more eloquently, that is that her long ago lost daughter was still with her, but in a new way. And that's to me what mm. so often a healthy someone who's who's living with their grief and with their joy um, at the same time. She found a way to carry her daughter forward um, and honor her daughter's life, and not wow. you and not and still go on and live a very robust life. Right. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. There's certain things that just leave you speechless, and that's one of those things. But what it what it really shows, and what it really tells me, at least, is to do this thing properly, to really grieve properly, you have to go through the really uncomfortable things. It would have been easy for this woman many years ago to never wash those baby clothes, but she knew she took the risk and took the chance for whatever reason to wash those clothes after suffering the loss. And like you said, while it was so devastating, it all it ultimately was a thing that allowed her to heal and kind of move on to the next level of her life. 
It actually was, and when I asked her about it, because the baby clothes were clean, and she hand-laundered them. I mean, she could have just thrown them in the washing machine. And she said she honestly did not know why she did it. When I said, you know, what made you choose this? She goes, I had no idea why I felt the need to do it. And she paused for a second and said something like, you know, I guess I was just trying to wash the death out. I didn't want somebody else's baby wearing, you know, or toddler wearing a dead baby's clothes. And so wow. there was something... It was almost like a baptism, if you will, in a way for her and the, and for these clothing and for wherever those clothes went on. Somebody else dressed their child in those clothes and was probably thrilled to have clothes for their little warm baby. Um, so it definitely, you know, there is no getting through grief without pain. Um, and like I said, even those grievers that you think, God, they're not crying. What's going on with that person? Aren't, aren't they sad? So-and-so passed away. Um, they probably are. And they probably have an awful lot going on inside. Um, and they, we all have to go through that pain. There is no really going around. And that's, and that is where you can run into trouble. If you're using your grief and your coping mechanisms to try to rush through grief or push it away, um, I think as you talked about earlier on, it will come back to bite you and it will actually slow your healing. Um, so you, yeah, so there is something of a, a birth by fire, if you will, when it comes to losing someone you love. Sure. And that could be, like I said, that could be an animal companion. It could be a child. Um, it could be a grandparent. Um, you know, there's so many losses. Yeah, you, you have to, you definitely have to suffer through the feelings you have to feel those feelings in order to fully heal um with anything with any type of loss kimberly at poetowl.com poetowl.com we'll link up your website in the show notes you also authored the book uh grieving us a field guide for living with loss without losing yourself that came out in march of this year and uh, we will link that as well in the show notes you can find it on amazon um, this is fascinating stuff, and, and I really appreciate your time. Um, is there anywhere else online that you'd want people to reach out, or was that was that the spot? No, I think that's great. I did, Nate, for your wonderful The Optimal Life listeners, I did set up a separate little page for them. So it's uh, poetl.com slash optimal life. So, you know, there's a page I set up specifically for your listeners. So if they want to, you know, respond to anything or you know sure. a quick link to the book or whatever is right there so i try to make it really easy for those listening to this podcast oh fantastic and we'll make sure we link that link in the show notes as well poetowl.com slash optimal life hey listen yes, yes, yes. Th thank you so much for your time and uh um, thank you Nate. wishing thank you all you. the best 